You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of Prehistories. I'm Kim Bidolf and it's really nice that you have come to listen to this today. Now, prehistories, we, we talk about the stories told about prehistory. Of course, prehistory itself is before written history. So um, most of the stories that we're talking about on this podcast are modern stories using evidence or indeed supposition about prehistory to tell stories. But at some point, I will get on to some oral histories that may have been passed down and written down later um, and, and I want to talk about those at some point. Do we get a bit closer to the stories that prehistoric people actually told? But that's not today. Today we are going to be talking about a modern story, um, not a book this time but a film and um, we're going to be deconstructing that a little bit and, and having fun with it. Of course, the stories that we tell as archaeologists, um, are they political? Of course they are. We're all political. We all have political beliefs. Um, we can't get rid of that in the stories that we tell and the, and possibly sometimes in the points that we're trying to make and get across. But what we can do is if we explicitly say that or, or at least realize what viewpoint we're coming from and, um, Oh, you can't, you can't really be totally objective, but you can, um, let other people know where you're coming from so that they can evaluate your ideas through that lens. Um, and we can have a discussion about it. Um, the stories that other people tell, that non-archaeologists tell about prehistory, where do they come from? Um, and are they political? Of course course they are and I think today will be interesting this podcast will be interesting because we are going to get some of those um those ideas coming through that uh, um about politics that's going on right now well without further ado I shall introduce my guests well I'm gonna so hello to my guests hi James hi Erin hey hi Hello. Now, um, you've both been on the podcast before, and obviously I love having you on, so I asked you back. Um, Erin, um, you are a geomythologist, is that right? Yes. Yeah, it's an interesting title. Um, so you're, you're working at the University of Wales, Trinity St. David at the moment. Um, what, what kind of things do you get up to then? Um, the moment, my main thing is a, a project called Layers in the Landscape, which is about bringing mm. science and history and art together to re-look at archaeological representation, which includes things like animation, cartoons. So, right. Yeah. So this is this is quite good. Uh, it it is definitely on my radar too about thinking about how. Um, some of the um, uh, people are are represented in prehistory. I'm very obviously keen on that, um, which has come across, I think, a lot in the prehistories podcast and some of the other things. Um, and, and it will come up quite a lot today. With or I haven't introduced yet what we're going to talk about, but let's um, have a think about what that might be. Um, James, you're at the University of Southampton, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And you're studying for your PhD at the moment. Yeah, it, it'll it'll be completed at some point, some point soon, hopefully. <laughs> that's great. So it's going well. Yeah, I mean, it's getting there. Um, just at the stage of starting to sort out some of the experiments, as it's quite experimentally focused. Lovely. Yeah, you've you are basically early man, aren't you? Oh, there, I've given a little clue away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I like to think of myself as quite refined. Um, at times so uh, you know it's I, I I do have shades of uh, bronze uh, on my comple- complexion you, yes say. you do not, not quite yeah. as advanced as iron that's a bit boring for me but uh, certainly sort of Neolithic <laughs> bronze age transition I think I think suits me quite well it is it is a very interesting time isn't it which, which works quite nicely um, and your particular um 
well, you do obviously do make bronze as well, but but you're also um, quite skilled in making stone tools, aren't you? I've got a few of your lovely stone tools that you've made for me. Yeah, I mean, flint napping, is, I guess, is my core thing. It's the uh, craft I've been doing oh. the longest since I was about 10. Um, yeah, I liked the pun. I saw that. I heard that too, Erin. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, yeah, I mean, but a bit like the uh, the Mitchell and Webb car sketch, uh, bronze is brilliant and it's slightly shiny. Yeah, it um, can be extremely it's shiny. Pretty, never seen molten metal being poured in front of your eyes it's it's something special and i think there's there's a bit of a bug in that that you can very easily pick up i can imagine and to have something that's shiny almost like a gold weapon or a tool in fact it must be amazing yeah yeah and it's uh the the whole casting procedure um is you know, you, there's a lot of build-up to a sudden moment where you're creating something in a few seconds, and you open a mold, and it could be perfect, it could be really bad. Mm. Um, there's a lot of tension. Whereas generally with flint napping, you're building quite slowly and very visually um, to a finished stage. There isn't this sudden moment when it all just comes together and happens. Yeah. It is a big change in technology. And as you say, when you go to iron, it's very different again to how you you work iron. Um, And I know a few blacksmiths. I need to have a go at that, really. But uh, it's a a bit different. Anyway, so the I mean, the reason why we're delving into this is because um, today we're going to talk about the film that's just come out called Early Man. um, Which I like to put a little um, parenthesis on the end and say sick. Not with a K, um, but it's it's in, it's called that for a reason, and we'll get onto that later. Um, so it's an Ardman film. The creators of Wallace and Gromit and Chicken Run and um, Shaun the Sheep, which is just so much fun, um, and all of those fantastic films, which are hilariously funny. Um, they've done a caveman film. Uh, if you haven't already seen the trailers, which are like everywhere. Um, and uh, we've all been to see it now. And uh, it, we thought it'd be really good to get together and chat about it. James, didn't you get to go to the to the um, premiere? Yeah, I was invited to go along and uh, Nick Card actually uh, introduced the film to us. Whoa, cool. Um, which was pretty special. Um, so so are, I was invited you... to go along to Leicester Square. Um, nice. And I'd come back uh, from Copenhagen um, a matter of hours beforehand. So I, I I was asleep on the train on the way in and I was half <laughs> expecting to be fighting to stay awake during the uh, special screening. But I didn't at all. I was I was fully engaged. So I guess that's testimony to how good the film was. Are you congratulating? Con- contractually obliged to say that no 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 i'm joking you know, <laughs> if, if they're happy to add me in some way to uh, early man 2 then i certainly wouldn't say no <laughs> i bet yeah you, you didn't Anko, if you're listening <laughs> yeah if there's a sequel that would be good um they um <coughs> excuse me did you go in in your furs or it, it was tempting, but uh, I, I was also pretty knackered at the same time and uh, wasn't quite up for embracing it fully. So we just saw it at our local cinemas, didn't we, Erin? Yes. Well, Mine which is an hour away. Well done. Thank you so much for going to that. <laughs> very local, in the snow. In the snow. I know, because Erin lives in the wilds of Wales where the, you know, the cinema is miles away. So thank you. I knew that it would be it would be really good to hear your point of view on this. Um, I mean, obviously, it is it's a fun film, wouldn't you say, Erin? Yes. I what would. was your What were your initial thoughts about it when you saw it? My initial reaction was to send my brain to go and wait outside for a bit whilst it stopped having a tantrum. Um, but after we got past dinosaurs and people and the Toba volcano and I. Like, just got myself into the headspace of thinking it's a mishmash of stuff and that's fine <laughs> it was all great from then on i just had to let go of the representation part first and then i thoroughly enjoyed it, it. so you went to your happy place <laughs> yes 
Well, my brain did. <laughs> the rest of me was fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I to be honest with you, I didn't think it was um, that. Um, what's the word? It wasn't like a classic Ardman um, film with a uh, with with that many laughs for me. But maybe I didn't send my brain to a happy place. I'm not sure. Well, how afraid are you with football history? Uh, I, I, funnily enough, I have written about football history. Uh, oh no, did I do that or did I do rugby? I can't remember. I was writing some things. It's some random thing. I get to write these random things about history of various things for a, a teaching website, and um, and I did sports, which is really weird for me. I, I wouldn't mind doing sword fighting. I love a bit of sword fighting. Could do that. But that wasn't on the cards. It was all all the stuff that everybody else is interested in. And I, I'm not sure I did football, actually. Mm. I did there cricket. Are, there are a lot of football jokes in there that actually are, are very funny if you're that way inclined. Um, <laughs> but to be fair, I there was only Martin Bates and I in the cinema laughing at them. I'm not sure anybody else got them. Ah, well, there you go. There were a couple of them I got. Obviously, let's. So, shall we get over this early man thing first of all? Yeah. Um. So, uh, it's called early man because of a particular joke that they put in later. Surely, surely that's the only reason they called it that. Don't you think, James? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, as Aaron was saying, there's, there's a lot of uh, a lot of jokes that are, are set into the film, and some of it is built up around some of the jokes. Um, but you know, from the start, yeah, I, the, the, it's very, very clear that it, there is no attempt for it to be authentic in any way, um, which is great. That's fine. I can sit back and enjoy the film. Um, but uh, I kind of afterwards, I thought about it and thought, well, you know, the whole thing is kind of a, a bit of a laugh. Um, I kind of took the uh, the title as a bit of a, a laugh in itself at uh, the way that we used to talk about early man and people in prehistory, and it is very early man heavy. Whereas these days, it's it's generally prehistoric people, Neolithic people, Mesolithic people. Um, you know, I, I don't think I'm looking into it too much. Um, you know, full credit to the uh, Nick Cardinus team for really quite carefully thinking about what works and what's funny. Um, there were times when it was quite Fred Flintstoney, and I think that was intentional <laughs> yeah. um, to really, you know, make make it quite fun for a variety of different ages. It's fun for kids, and it's fun for adults who kind of got some of the jokes or the football references, or even for the archaeologists like ourselves who would see things like the title and think, yeah, you know, they, they are poking fun um, at you know the way we used to refer to these people. Well, I was th- I I see a lot of headlines with early man and things like that on it or prehistoric man or and uh, I wonder whether it's not really a thing of the past and that's why it, it did bother me slightly but I mean the whole point was that at some point it's a football it, it's basically a football story right so at some point the early man united joke comes in and I thought oh that's why they called it that <laughs> yeah I mean it, it, I, I, I think that's the main crux of it I, I think James his point about the sort of nineteenth century representation of prehistory as being early man where Neanderthals were lumped together um with early early hominins and you've got that mishmash that we then see represented in things like the Flintstones. I think it I do think it reflected that extremely well and perhaps poked fun at people who still use those references, a little tongue-in-cheek. Um, so I think you can either think about it on a very surface level or really yeah. go into it deeply and it still stands up. It's when you sit in the middle that it, it feels a bit uncomfortable. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, I think that's a, you know, that, that, that definitely uh, works with how I, uh, how I saw it. I'm kind of pleased that someone else saw it in a, in a similar view. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, the, uh, we don't want to give away too many spoilers. So basically, um, it, the story starts uh, with 
like humans and dinosaurs living together or everybody fighting. Then this massive asteroid comes down and creates a crater, but the asteroid itself becomes the very first. Obviously, the crater kills all the dinosaurs, but the humans are okay. And they now have something to play with so that they can get along and stop fighting. And it is a football. Um, It's a bit hot to start with. And then they, you know, they... Uh, manage all right and then you kind of cut to later in the stone age and um the tribe that comes together and goes and tries to go hunting for rabbits um and uh and then the bronze age people turn up um so it's um really about that that's why we could go into the neolithic bronze age transition which is really really interesting um which we will do a little bit later and of course, we call it. Oh yes, I w- I meant to say for all the American listeners, of course, when we talk about football, we mean soccer. <laughs> yeah, the proper football. <laughs> yeah, proper football. <laughs> can I? Can and of I clear? The- so can I yeah? clear up the dinosaur issue? Yeah. Why the dinosaurs are in there? Yeah. The dinosaurs are in there as a as a homage to uh, Ray Harryhausen. Um, he was the oh, he was oh. the visual effects designer for Clash of the Titans and One Million Years BC, and so they have two dinosaurs in there which they they've named Ray and Harry, um, and it's a homage to him, and that's why it doesn't fit in any way with the rest of the narrative. Yeah, because it doesn't um. make any sense to the story. Well, there are dinosaurs in there, and, and then there are people, um, but that's what that's about. It's it's a reference to One Million Years BC, so it's a oh, stop cool. motion animation joke. Oh, lovely. Um, which is oh, fine really if you nice. know about stop motion animation, but there's probably not that many of us watching it. Well, although I think that Ray Harryhausen is pretty well known, although I, d- I didn't get that reference. I do no, know. No, that's, that's why it's in. Yeah, that's really good. Because, um, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about One Million Years BC. I mean, we've talked about that on the on the podcast before. And when you think about what what uh, Europe was like, for instance, or anywhere in the world was like one million years BC, um, there are no modern humans. So, and it, and I would like to see that film made. That would be fantastic. Um, but there you go. Um, it, it, it's a. Uh, maybe maybe there's just too I just get into this whole thing about needing it to be accurate um yes me too and it's and really I should just go with the flow but there's just so much of this caveman thing out there there is there all the children's things are all Mm -hmm. about cavemen and saying ugh and all that stuff now Mm -hmm. I just have my daughter here with me who should be asleep now she came to see early man with me didn't you darling and um did you enjoy it yes was it funny yes and what was the best bit about it the football oh you enjoyed the football because you like playing football don't you yeah yeah so um was that was that was really well done was it and was it exciting Yes. Now, what did you and your friend say, your friend Olivia? What did you say when after we saw that film? That was it. Was it accurate? Was it true? No. No. So, my daughter is just about to turn eight in a couple of months, and she knows that it's not. You know, it doesn't matter. It's not. It's not as if that's going to be true. Of course, it's not. And if you've got, um you've got it in Ardman style, then I do you know, why do I worry so much about these things? <laughs> now we're going to take a break. Whilst- <laughs> well, I'm, we're going to take a break whilst I put my daughter back to bed and <laughs> we'll be back in a couple of minutes um, to talk a little bit more in depth about some of the issues that we can, that we can bring out from this film, because it, it does actually cover some really interesting time periods. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our online store 
and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hello, and we're back. Um, so, the I mean, really, the big issue that comes out of this film is the fact that the Bronze Age turns up and changes the Stone Age world. Um, of the kind of things that they bring are money and um, markets, uh, social stratification, definitely, patriarchy, it seems, as well, and civilization. Now, what, what kind of evidence is there for any of those things happening in the Bronze Age? Oh, where to start? Um, <laughs> well, let, oh, let's start. Um, let's start in. Should we start in Britain? Why not? I mean, because it's early Bronze Age Wessex, you know, and that kind of does suggest that there is a bit of social stratification going on. Yeah, um, I mean, you, you definitely have quite a, a complex social structure in the Neolithic beforehand. It's it's just well, exactly. coming across as quite different. Uh, as soon as you start to get Bronze Age archaeology coming along, particularly through burials, it's, it's where a Bronze Age culture and uh, society restructure is best represented. And how, do, how does that change? Can you describe it for us? So in a lot of Neolithic uh, burials th- throughout the UK, um, particularly in the West, um, you will see in quite uh, group organised constructions of large monuments, whether they be long barrows um, that have chambers or just earth mounds um, or portal dolmens uh, with groups of people that uh, in some cases are family members, whether they're some kind of stamp on the landscape that they're making a claim to as much as a space to bury ancestors is quite interesting. Um, And it's really interesting uh, that uh, for a lot of these long barrows and Neolithic tombs, there's often a uh, quite significant frequency of people that have met a fairly violent end, Mm -hmm. um, often via blunt force trauma. Um, It suggests the Neolithic is nowhere near as peaceful as we might have thought 10, 15 years ago. Whereas in the Bronze Age, um, the time when weapons are being produced for the first time that are not tools that could be dangerous, they are weapons, you're starting to see uh, single burials um, that may be reused um, as a secondary burial, um, but primarily it's things like kiss burials, um, cremation urns that are put in pits. Um, It's just very, very different. Um, It's nowhere near as egalitarian um, as the Neolithic beforehand. And yet, if you if you think if you have a slightly if you look more closely at the evidence that not everybody in the Neolithic was buried in these tombs, because otherwise we'd have hundreds of more hundreds more skeletons. So there's there's some some criteria that are being used to select who's going in. Yeah, and that may be community based um, as to what they choose or decide to do or it might be down to the individual what they did or achieved in their life Um, but even if as you go forward through the Neolithic Bronze Age and into the Iron Age the the percentage of represented individuals is so small um, that people must be doing something um, that ends up almost destroying the remains of uh, their families and communities whether that be cremation and then scattering of ashes or some other process um, but that seems to be the case throughout prehistory there's always a quantity of people within a community so that it's self-sufficient that are just not represented and that's either because they haven't been found or because they're being disposed of in a way that we just can't trace but you do so so by the early bronze age I mean, you do get kind of the, there. There are quite a lot of cremation burials in the, um, for instance, at Stonehenge, aren't there, and yeah. other places in the middle kind of Neolithic. But by the early Bronze Age, you've got these um, burials of individuals, and yeah. some of them, especially around Stonehenge and and kind of Wiltshire and and so on, uh, are buried with a huge amount of gold and and bronze. Yeah, um, exactly. Objects. And you, you do start to see that from the late Neolithic as well, um, particularly in Northern England, 
uh, Scotland and uh, in parts of Wales, uh, where people are starting to be buried with uh, quite personal objects um, like jet um, beads or uh, necklaces of some kind, mm. um, if that's uh, how they were put together. The interpretations we have today suggest that they were quite ornate necklaces, which is probably the case, um, or quite uh, finely flaked uh, flint axes. Um, that have been polished generally only at the blades, which may be an attempt to copy some of the very early metal axes that are appearing on the continent. Um, so they're almost scudomorphs uh-huh. of the yeah. uh, these early axes from that are made of metal that they just don't have access yet to yet. Yeah, so the representation of that that kind of social stratification. Do you think that's that's um, um, more or less representing what? archaeologists have been saying about the change to the Bronze Age, Erin? Or is is that, I mean, that's where they got that idea from, presumably, is because archaeologists have been saying, when you get to the early Bronze Age, you get this, these, this uh, individual burial with lots and lots of lovely stuff. <laughs> um, possibly. Uh, I mean, the... The, the actual archaeological representation of that is that it's something we identify with. Um, it doesn't mean social certification wasn't happening beforehand, just in a way that we don't necessarily recognise mm. in today's society. Um, and I think perhaps they were reflecting that. Um, it was almost idealistic about the Stone Age man living in unity with a, a, a mixed racial family, living just of rabbits who seem quite happy to die um, and yet actually never do. Yeah. And there's this sort of idealised approach versus <laughs> this. Yeah, what do they... Yeah, I mean, what actually, how, how are they living on one rabbit in a tribe anyway? Um, but you've got this... <laughs> pretty pretty approach and then you've got this modern city where it's busy and it's bustling and it's competitive and it's hierarchical so there's there's clearly a comment being made there um and i think that reflects certainly an antiquarian approach to transition um rather than an actual archaeological approach yeah so maybe i mean it does this mean that the I hate to use this word because uh, I I'm not a massive fan of archaeological theory, but um, obviously it it is important. <laughs> that was hard for me to say, but it is important. So um, the discourse, the public discourse about archaeology about prehistory, is still dominated by those antiquarian models. Yes. You think the yes. kind of the the yeah that kind of communal harmonious living in the stone age and then going to tribal and then going to state and all that stuff that that kind of evolution of the of of civilization Mm. yes absolutely and i think it taps (laughs) it taps straight into that in in a way that i'm not convinced the subtleties of that are, are necessarily going to be picked up on by everybody viewing it, I think some people will swallow yeah. it it whole, um, which could be problematic. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, it's it's a, it's just a fun film, but it's it is perpetuating these these ideas about how civ- civilization goes on. And but I suppose, um, well, no, we don't want to spoil the end anyway. Um, <laughs> the the big. Th- uh, well, it's not a big thing, but one small thing about that transition as well is that um, don't you think that that before bronze is is um, is kind of invented, discovered, um, that there has to have been that farming period, or at least um, pottery needs to have been produced? Because I I really mm. feel like um, that the use of fire is and the control of fire to be able to smelt the ore and to um and to melt the um uh the metals together to make the alloy that uh, that is bronze is really comes out of the control of fire that's needed for all sorts of things not just pottery but also roasting grain and things like that in the neolithic which i mean obviously 
um, that's not represented because the Stone Age is just the Stone Age to a lot of people. Um, the biggest change for, uh, that I think is is between the hunter ga- hunting and gathering to to farming, which happens in the Stone Age. I, I think that was something that was understandably skipped over in the animation. I mean, we've got a merging, haven't we, of Mesolithic, Neolithic, Neanderthals. Um, it's all mishmashed together, um, which is useful, really, because it releases them from having to have a coherent chronology, which would be extremely complex, I think, to do in such a short space of time, if you excuse the pun there. Um, mm. But it, it does leave holes in the storyline, which I found uncomfortable and difficult to reconcile. Uh, I felt like it needed revisiting um, and and addressing just a little bit. What do you think, James? Do you think that that was missing? Yeah, I mean, it's... um, Erin's exactly right there. I mean, you've got a mishmash um, between hunter-gatherer societies that even touch upon the Upper Paleolithic. Mm. Um, and all of a sudden the Bronze Age appears and quite literally stamps itself on this landscape, um, almost like you know, quite an old view of people of the Bronze Age sweeping across and invading the landscape. Um, I mean, I was part of a series quite recently on the BBC that was called Invasion, and uh, you know, I was involved in uh, the invasion of the Neolithic farmers. And actually it was a case of deconstructing that it wasn't this mass invasion of people um, with uh, you know their, their farming and uh, modern ideas all the way from the Middle East. It, it, it was a gentle fusion of people and ideas in particular um, that would have worked both ways um, and may well have been caused by social pressure in localized areas that meant that some people moved over to Britain and brought certain cultures like types of tombs um, that you see on one side of Britain and you don't see on the other um, that may have been caused by uh, the linear uh, vessel cultures Mm. of uh, Central Europe or on the other side of Britain, on the west, uh, from the Iberian Peninsula. Um, you know, this idea of you know people coming over in one set wave from one side of the map to the yeah. other, it, it's just, it's very rarely the realistic case. Not, not always impossible, but uh, it's very rarely the case. But, you know, with films like this, unless they're, they're setting out from the start that they're going to try and be accurate in any kind of way, it's very, very difficult for them to portray something accurately because they're going to face problems. Um, if they're going to have a quite a strict Neolithic society, they're going to have to explain in some way why the society is like this, how it works. And, you know, you're looking at a film that could be three or four hours long <laughs> just to try and... I know, to try and get all of our motion. stuff in. We need them to tell our story. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's difficult to do. You're, you're right. And then, you know, we're to tell a good story. And we've, I've uh, said this many times on the podcast that, we, that uh, the chronologies have to be mm. shrunk they, to make it into that, that story. And you, you can have a prologue, like they have a prologue with the Neanderthals and, and or, who also do cave paintings, of course. Um, and, uh, the, and then you go, to the a later time, as it were, um, and I think that that they've they've done that. But to do any more than that is um, is just silly, especially if you're you are making, especially this type of film. It's it's for kids mainly, it and it's um, for entertaining. And we're being a little bit, you know, it it does seem a bit strange for us to sit here deconstructing <laughs> Early Man, which is just a fun. Oh, film. But, you know, in many ways... There's also a set issue that you have to think about with stop motion. I mean, they used 37, I believe, different sets for this. So in creating a cave yeah. environment with, with, I mean, I'm not even going to start on the paleobotany, um, with a, a limited fauna and flora, then yeah. that gave them a, a, a stage to spin everything else off. And they couldn't really have made it more complicated than that. I mean, you're, you're looking at no, five no. seconds of footage taking a week to make for one hour. Oh, later. I know. It's, yeah. it's a huge amount of work. I mean, the, the yeah. long, their longest it's scene massive. is, what, 40 seconds, and that took eight weeks. 
wow. I mean, there was a limited amount of detail. Yeah, and it's an unbelievable. Yeah, and that's that's with 120 full time members of staff and 20 freelancers working on it. I mean, that's there is a limit to what they can do. So they have created one secure set. and blurred, I think, yeah. a lot of the edges to do with um, flora, yeah. fauna, hunter-gathering. And it, it was going to be difficult to challenge what were they eating. I mean, are we in Goth Cave here? You know, who were they eating? What were they eating? What were they doing? So they, they do reflect, <laughs> I think, a broad genetic baseline in the individuals they've got. I mean, you've got a range of skin and hair colours, and shapes and sizes. Yeah. Um, so even though they set up yes. this European invasion um, storyline, actually they've all, they've already counteracted it with the dog's tribe in the first instance, which I think is quite nice. It is quite nice, and of course, there were we're we're recording this on the seventh of February. By the way, I think it's gonna it, it won't be out till March. Um, but uh, today was the day that that broke the Cheddar Man mm. story, um, where the DNA studies are potentially telling us that Cheddar Man, who was um, Mesolithic, early Mesolithic, um, or very late Upper Paleolithic. Um, uh, had very dark skin and dark hair and blue eyes. And um, there have been other studies of Mesolithic people, other DNA uh, genetic studies um, that are throwing up the same ideas. And actually, you mentioning before, James, that there was this um, where it's more it's more complicated than just waves of invasion bringing first the Neolithic and then the Bronze Age and then uh, whatever. And then the Celts, of course, who always have to come up. Um but quite a lot of genetic studies are actually, um, which are, they are still, you know, they're not in their infancy as such, but I think we're still working through what the genetic studies mean. Um, uh, but they're starting to kind of bring back those ideas of those invasions a little bit with, um, you know, more of more evidence of people moving in prehistory. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it's a really, really difficult one, and uh, you know, trying to trace back our ancestry, whether it be a couple of hundred years ago or thousands of years ago, is always in the public interest. People always want to know where they came from um, or who their ancestors were. You know, there, there's an economy behind it, and there's a background public interest. Um, and I think, you know, when when I saw the uh, Cheddar Man news, you, as with all of the these bits of news and I'm not focusing on this in particular you always have to take them with a pinch of salt and actually think about what's going on behind it um as I've said before yeah. you're, you're going to be getting people who would have come into Britain from possibly all parts of the old world um at different times bringing new ideas new artifacts that would have fueled new motions we, we know that uh, the, you know people and ideas uh, in the paleolithic Mesolithic, Neolithic, Bronze Age, and even into the Iron Age are incredibly difficult to track and trace. Um, but we're seeing you know, the uh, reconstruction of the Cheddar Man uh, based on the genome sequence that they've been working on. That's not necessarily to say that's exactly what they would have looked like when they were uh, in life or when they were buried. Uh, we know by looking at uh, you know, even Native Americans that once they're outside uh, of the environment that they have been uh, in the past, that their their skin tone is either darkened up or lightened up. Um, it's based on the environment um, that they're in, uh, and that's the case with a lot of archaeology. Um, people and humans are very adaptable. Um, it, you know, they still would have kept that background uh, makeup that makes them, um, and that's what we can see and trace now. Mm-hmm. But how they would have adapted, you know, regardless of race, regardless of even religion, um, you know, people adapt, they change. Um, that's why you know, archaeology is so brilliant, uh, and uh, it's just a bit frustrating at times. You know, people are very, very focused on you know, the, these people are quite different to what we expected. They're just people. 
Um, you yeah. know, we are going to get people who have come from quite a distant land into our archaeology, and that's what makes it exciting. Um, you know, news like this it is exciting, does. but it's not particularly unexpected. It is one individual. Um, exciting though it yeah. is it is one individual there, there may well be and almost certainly are people who will also have come from a distance or certainly their heritage is from quite a distance to where they've been found now um but you know saying things like the first britain etc or to the british isles it wasn't yeah. an island at the time it wasn't britain um it it was a landmass that was connected to the continent that we have today um, there's, there's just so much labeling an agency that's chucked into it to make it very, very sensationalist. I know we have to just take a break briefly, but we can come back and talk a bit more about this because I can see that you're quite passionate about, or here, in fact, that I, you're quite passionate about this. Okay. We'll be back in a minute. The Archaeology Podcast Network has partnered with T Public to bring you some awesome gear that looks good, promotes archaeology, and puts a few pennies in our pockets so you can get free podcasts. Check out our designs at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop. Hello, and we're back again. Ah, now we were getting, uh, James was getting quite uh, passionate about um the uh, what were you talking about, James? Now <laughs> we were talking about the Cheddar Man news. <laughs> oh, Cheddar Man! Yeah, that's right. We, it took quite a while because Erin lives in the wilds of Wales. It took quite a while for her um, audio to upload. Just this is something for the listeners to know. Um, yes, so my mind wandered. Yes, Cheddar Man, and um, and therefore the representation of all of the different types of people in. Um, Doug's tribe was really nice, particularly like hearing Richard Iowardi. Um, I just think he's fantastic. Um, uh, and but I think it was it was it felt uncomfortable to me that all the Bronze Age people were various European voices, um, and we were the doughty Brits. And I just I, I just I think I'm a bit over that kind of film. Um, what Erin? <laughs> What do you think? I, I think that's that's a football point. Um, um, as in mm. the uh, racial and genetic mixture that we're seeing actually on all all sides for this, because as much as the the archaeology is a mishmash of periods and references, the the, the second narrative that we move into um, for yeah. football is also a mishmash of references. You know, there's a touch of the sort of early Tudor football and the carvings on Gloucester Cathedral about two men kicking a ball in the air. That's what 14th century. We've got a bit of that in there. We've got ooh, um, the World Cup in 1966. We've got predictions for 2018. So we've we've got this combination of histories happening, and that's shown in the the, the racial mix we see in the players and in the voices. And apparently they did try different accents because they were concerned that people would misconstrue it. And then they ended up going back to the combination they had in the beginning yeah. and decided, oh, just stuff it, we'll go with it. Because it, it, does, it does work and it pokes, it doesn't really poke fun, but I think it highlights that element that people are just people regardless of whether they've got loads of money and they're living in civilization, whether they're living in a cave and they're eating rabbit, doesn't make any difference. And I think that meta-narrative comes through quite strongly in the film, um, which fits, I think, with what James was saying about, about Cheddar Man. Yeah, I think I didn't. I, it's fascinating to see how you're um, kind of almost mining the film for all of those references to the um, where they where they got them all from. I love that, um, and I I didn't know that much about the uh, the footballing history. So that although of course some of the references to um, the 1966 World Cup, which is in, is just one of those cultural memories that obviously came through, but. <laughs> Yes, and I mean Rob, Rob Brydon's um, impersonations are absolutely flawless as well, which I I, I think helps um, there. I'm yeah. I'm lucky or unfortunate, whichever way you want to bring it, in that I have a, a football historian in the family, um, 
so I've, I've somehow found myself with all this knowledge that I, I really didn't know I had until I was sat in the cinema. Um, and I was recognising yeah. oh, really all the points of reference. So that was really nice. And I, it made me then think again about the archaeology and the, the opening sequences and look at them um, from a slightly more holistic, relaxed position and say, well, if you can do that with football, you can do that with archaeology. And actually, if this raises questions about what was that reference in football, we're not thinking, oh, well, that doesn't, this part doesn't fit. Oh, that no. well, that referee looks like Pep, you know, Pep Guardiola. Um, but how does that work with, with uh, 1966? And we don't complain about that. It raises a question. So maybe yeah, the archaeological yeah. part, the prehistoric part, maybe as with the Ice Age films, it will raise questions for those of us working in outreach rather than providing dogmatic answers that we have to break through i'm hopeful yeah i mean in many ways it, it we yeah why do we get so precious about this but and in many ways those films the ice age films are very helpful and the um some of the other things that are widespread uh, they actually provide context at least so yeah. you can work from them in a way are you they're a springboard to um getting yes. into into other things um more detailed things which you can't do in a story um not like this anyway a film you could in a chapter book can't so much in a picture book but when you're with people you know face to face you can you know it's it's a very it's a it's the most interactive thing isn't it um the most interactive way it is i mean you could you could use this film sections of this film in in teaching to students quite easily. You could show them the opening sequence and ask them, say to them, right, you've got two minutes, write down a list of things that were right and a list of things that were wrong, or write down all the reference points you can get. And you could springboard from there into discussions about transitions um, between time yeah, periods yeah. and their relation to geography. And, you know, were there dinosaurs just outside Manchester? We <laughs> could take it that Oh, way. yeah, that was quite good fun. Yeah. Um, there, there is um, I know, James, that you um, sometimes work with kids as well, go out to schools and um, and things like that. Um, do you have that same kind of uh, those um, children bringing up certain things like sloth, sloths in the in the ice age and things like that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and sloth, they all know about sloths are <laughs> giant sloths are always a. Uh, uh, a bit of an issue to tackle. When I was working with Gordon <laughs> Kindersley, there was quite a lot of interest to include uh, things like giant sloths, and, it's, and it had to make it very clear that they're very regionally specific. Um, yeah. But that's the case with a lot of archaeology. Things are regionally specific, and people just can't seem to understand that uh, some things were the case in some places and not in others. I, yes, and, and that is interesting do you think that uh, that that all of this cultural stuff that goes on that 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 uses caveman stuff is quite useful for us to know if we're going to be talking specific particularly to children um uh so you know we have to almost we're forced to go and see early man (laughs) because we know that the kids are going to see it and then they're going to come and they're going to talk to us and say this and this and this and we need to know what they're going on about Uh, no i mean i would to be honest, I think if I had to talk to a group of year three, fours tomorrow, I would, wouldn't even mention it. Um, I, I wouldn't. I would try to avoid draw, drawing upon films like Early Man because it, it, otherwise you're making that connection to uh, view the film whilst thinking about you know pe- people in the past. And we, and I know we're looking at it from that point of view, but to avoid confusion as much as anything um i, I would almost so try you kind of start it. from a start from a blank slate yeah i think it would be far more constructive i mean yeah as erin said definitely thinking about it with students um yes. and starting to think about it um as an archaeological representation um trying to get students to think about outreach yeah great um with now, primary school students, I think it's best really to start from blank. I mean, we're archaeologists. We can paint a picture. That's our job um, that, you know, the kids can find really engaging. Uh, trying to 
bring in films um, that are directly, whether purposely accurately or um, inaccurately, I, I think is making it confusing. Whereas bringing in other resources that are not an attempt to have an archaeological influence. So we all know how valuable Minecraft is to archaeology at the moment. It's not yeah. an accurate, it's not attempting to be any kind of representation of archaeology, but it really, really helps. Um, and uh, it's been surprising how helpful it is. I mean, when I'm trying to describe extraction of metal and smelting of metal, production of metal tools, Minecraft's great. And you just say, well, what do you do with ore? Oh, we put it in a furnace. Yeah, great. Okay. We've yeah, they do all of that. It's brilliant. That point that in a few years ago would have been really difficult to get over. But yeah, yeah. as I said, it's it's not Minecraft is not this archaeology game or it's not a prehistoric people game in any way, shape or form. Whereas something like Early Man, 10,000 BC, you know, n- number of films out there, they are either directly or indirectly having some kind of influence on people's view. And I think they should be not you know quite almost policing them apart from each other but i don't think they're particularly helpful to each other i i i agree and i i would have liked a caveat at the beginning of the film actually for early man that said that this was not a true story mm. that this is not historically accurate because it if from a teaching point of view we start with a blank slate but the children don't the children start yeah. from the no, position of no, having watched Early Man and Ice Age, and they can be quite vociferous in arguing that giant sloths exist and, you know, talking about, you mentioned mammoths, and they immediately talk about Ice Age. Hmm. You, can't, you can't avoid it. So to understand their points of reference and to be able to gently tease out the fiction and say, but that's a, that's a cartoon you know, that's an animation that isn't real. But this mammoth tooth, this, you can hold this in your hands to, to help them yeah. accept the differences between what they're saying. And, you know, critical thinking, four or five-year-olds are amazing at it. Um, but mm. they do come at us with fiction as their points of reference. And, and so yeah, knowing how to take them to that blank page... Um, I think is is important. Yeah, I mean, I was. Um, that's exactly where I was coming from. The fact that the children bring this up with you, um, and in some of the answers to your questions when you talk to them, or just randomly whilst you're doing something with them, they'll start talking about it. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that it it behooves us to know what they're talking about mm. um, and to um, be able to to bring them back to what is what is the evidence when we're we're actually teaching them um about this period so this is uh, yeah but fiction like you say erin fiction is the way that they have come through come to this information and and in schools that you know it's brilliant and and that's that's great but it's it's a different thing to us actually representing what we're saying with examples from early man. Yeah, that I, I agree with James. That just, that would be really confusing things. But we need to understand where they're coming from to transition then into a different way of thinking about evidence data. Yeah. Um, and it's it's useful. And the yeah. little faces light up. You, you show them a mammoth tooth and they're trying to guess what it is. And then they equate it with you know, the mammoth, whatever it's called, an, an ice age. And you get it, suddenly you get an entire class interested. So it is useful. Um, but yeah, mm. you've got to be re- you've got to really know where the pitfalls are so that you can navigate around them smoothly. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I was, um, thinking, you know, when my, my daughter said that she knew it wasn't true, this film, um, I think that, I mean, obviously she lives with someone who, you know, is a Stone Age woman for a living <laughs> some of the time. And so there's, you know, she's got a certain understanding anyway. Although I have to point out that she doesn't really pay much attention to what I say. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wonder, you know, she's seven. She's she's in year three. She's just been doing the Stone Age. Uh, that's pretty good 
to know that that's not true. But then it is, it's a, it's not cartoon, it's stop motion animation. It's got that kind of look about it that it looks like Shaun the Sheep, which everybody's aware, aware of. It looks like Wallace and Gromit. Um, and everybody knows those are just for fun. So, you know, again, we're, you know, uh, really we can worry too much about, about these representations, but it, I don't know. <laughs> I think we can. And actually there's an inclusion. I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it. There's an inclusion of a fantastical creature, a, a creature that has never existed and is made. I don't want to say what it is for anyone who hasn't watched it. <laughs> Um, that they they fly in on at one point. Um, yes. And I think that yes. draws attention to this is fiction. This is this is not meant to be factually correct. Yeah. And at the same time, of course, that's... Uh, yes, I suppose. Yeah, that's yeah it, it references football mascots. You know, the most popular British football mascot <laughs> is is connected with this particular creature. So you've got a nice football, couple of football references going on in there, but it also says, look, you know, not everything we're showing here will make sense in a factual way, <laughs> which I think covers, yes. covers that fictional yeah. element quite nicely. Maybe that's the caveat you were looking for. <laughs> Maybe I would have liked something up front, to be honest. I, I would have liked that a little yeah. clearer because there will be people who just believe this straight off. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, if um, there are a couple of other um, lovely films, I don't know if we're going to be able to talk about them on the podcast here, um, that are have either been released or are coming up. Um, now, I know, James, you... you have an outfit based on Ertzies, don't you? Is that That's right? Correct. Yeah. So, are you? Uh, I just don't know how to get hold of this film. Do you have any? I mean, because it's been released only really in in kind of arty film um, festivals and stuff. That um, Derman in Das. Oh, what's it called? No, let me say the German properly. Derman aus dem Eis, um, which is. Uh, about Ertzi and it's and it's a fictional story about how he might have come come to uh, the position where he he died, um, and um, oh, I just I just desperate to see it, but who I don't know how to get hold of it. I think it's still at the uh, sort of film festival stage at the moment. By the look of it, um, it will mm. probably be made available um, later this year. Um, I should have thought or would have thought it would uh, come available via Bolzano Museum where Utzi is housed either on the Facebook page. So there will be information. I'll be very surprised if it's not made available in some form. Yeah, that's a really good idea. So we'll keep an eye out for that. And um, uh, I'd love to talk to you about it if we manage to do to get hold of it, but it might be next year. I mean, Utzi is, um, is uh, a very... It is, it, he's just crying. He was always crying out for a story to be made of his life because we know so much about him. Yeah, I mean, it's a he's one of the most unique finds in prehistoric archaeology. Um, it's, um, I guess, the most complete individual and his equipment that we have from uh, the very late Neolithic um, and the, the unusual circumstances that he was found under just adds to the story. Really, um, it's. He's just a really good case study for a whole number of reasons. Yeah, so I, I'm desperate to see that film, and um, uh, I think that's that's going to be really good fun. One of the uh, yeah, anyway, we'll, maybe we'll talk about that more if we manage to get hold of it. But late out later this year is also um, another Stone Age film, which is um, called Alpha now, which is was called The Salutrian, but they've changed the name of it, um, and. Um, it just seems to be part of this genre of film, which we've talked about before, about, um, uh, it, again, it, it is trying to be more accurate than, than say, something like Early Man. Um, but it's it's the Upper Paleolithic, the the struggle for survival, uh, which always seems to be the story in, the, in, in films set in the Upper Paleolithic. Um, it'd be nice to have, like, a, you know, 
a drama or something. I don't know. Um, well, <laughs> anyway, that's just my view on it. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, for the upper Paleolithic, it's a time that I'm looking at for my PhD, so um, mm. it will be interesting. Um, I, I, I await it with some interest. The fact that they've changed the title suggests that there may be some concern over how accurate they think it is. If they kept it as the Salutrian, I think they would be quite happy that you know they they've stuck to the name of a specific time period um, and are happy to represent that time period. The fact that they've changed it suggests that, in in my view, that they they know that there are things that are inaccurate. There there are compromises that have been made. I think that always has to happen in um, in creating fiction about this these time periods that we love sadly um but yes hopefully maybe at some point we shall get to see that and talk about it but it's not out until um until september i think or later this year so maybe we can um talk about that too but for now i just need to say thank you so much to james and erin for joining me today thank you thank you for having me thank you so much and thank you james no problem. Um, it's been really good to talk to you. I think we can just say that Early Man is lots and lots of fun and we need to start worrying about these things. Thank you for listening, everyone, and uh, keep your eyes out for the next Prehistories podcast where I'll be talking about the Rollwright Stones in Oxfordshire and myths surrounding Standing Stone Circle. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.